You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, it's been a minute since he's here, but he's back, and we're thrilled to have him. Uh, Joshua Crawford, he's the executive director of the Pegasus Institute out in Louisville, Kentucky, fine city that's had a lot of stuff going on. So public policy folks have been very, very busy right there in your own backyard, my friend. He's also an attorney, uh, talks a lot about things like criminal justice reform, societal reform. Going to talk a little fatherhood with him today, though. How are you, friend? Good to see you back. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. What got you on the fatherhood thing? It, 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 obviously, you're a son, so we all have our own th- thoughts about it. I got to assume reading through it and you're talking about some of your own memories and fishing with your dad and stuff like that. Did Which way did it start? Was it a fatherhood thing and you went back to your own father for that? Or was it your father and then you went to it, do you think, when you went to write about the subject? Yeah, my my sort of thesis for the subject or really where I started was my dad and, you know, we, we did not have a tremendous amount uh, growing up. We were sort of lower working class and, and sometimes below that. But uh, my dad always sort of worked his butt off, uh, got up early in the morning, uh, got to work, got home late, but at the same time always made it to football games and baseball games and stuff like that. And so now as a father myself, uh, I've spent a lot of time with, over the last year reflecting on what about my dad 
made me who I am and, and how I want to do those things. And I'm blessed to have sort of more resources than we did when I was a kid. And so how can I make sure that my kids don't grow up spoiled and stuff like that? But, but really thinking about my dad was, was where it all started. Yeah. Joshua Crawford joined us. The piece is called America needs dads more than ever. Of course it was a father's day thing. We're kind of looping back to it because after the week we've all had, we need to talk about some building block stuff like this. I, I thought about it that way too. Cause you know, my own father who we, we were the same way. My parents were both school teachers. We weren't rich or anything, but I didn't know it. Cause we were, you know, pretty comfortable. I didn't realize a double wide wasn't supposed to be, you know, a prerogative. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a nice place to live. It didn't bother me one little bit. Um, I think of my own father's work ethic and how that's always uh, affected me. And it's something as I've gotten older, I'm 42 now, and you know, I've got two adult children, two high school kids. It really seeps into my thinking the older I get of, and I've learned it the hard way through mistakes. I'm not going to pretend like I've been a great father. You really start understanding how much of parenting is more modeling and more just stuff that they see than stuff that you, you know, you can sit down and say, I'm going to do this and this. You can't fool your kids, man. Like they see everything you do. And that model behavior is really where those thoughts of our own fathers and things like that. That's what really gets imprinted more than like an idea or a concept or things that we may talk about to improve fatherhood, doesn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, one of the things that gets said uh, oftentimes is that you don't have to be a great dad to be a good dad. Right. Uh, So much of it is is just showing up, just being there, just trying to do the right thing. just being able to, to play, you know, man to man defense as opposed to, to having to go zone, so to speak. And so um, there's a lot about uh, my time. I'm sure I will reflect back later in life on, on my time as a dad and be like, oh, I wish I did that differently or I really wish I did that differently. Um, but the, the crux of the piece and, and the crux of the importance of having an involved father is really having somebody there uh, and having somebody who cares and, and can model some of that behavior. You touch on it in the piece. The numbers are kind of striking. Thirty-four uh, percent of kids in a single-parent home—that's double since '68. Eighty-three percent of these homes, the parents has an absentee father of one shade or another. That comes out to something like 18 million kids in homes without dad. I want to preface that with: there is nothing in the world I respect more than a single mother. So that's no, you know, dispersion on any right. of them because God bless them. Uh, yep. But. Those are those are pretty shocking numbers when you start talking about raising children and the lack of children without a father. That kind of gets to the heart of the problem, because this isn't like a policy solution where we're going to pass one law and it fixes it or we set a regular. This is generational type stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, there there are two major problems with fatherhood in America right now. The first is what you've hit on, which is that the trend is going the wrong direction. We are we are having more and more kids in father absent homes, uh, not less. And, and that's a trajectory that's been pretty constant since the late 1960s. And the second is that uh, virtually every social ill that you can think of from teenage pregnancies to low academic achievement and including and especially public safety outcomes are negatively impacted by not having that father in the home. And to the point that you made, I mean, single moms do heroic work, but from a statistical standpoint, uh, kids who grow up in that environment are just much more likely to find themselves experiencing many, many social ills. And just speak to that on a practical level, because you are an attorney, you've been uh, a prosecutor. The criminal justice system is absolutely awash in, in kids. And I'm going to say kids because that's, that's where you lose them. We know statistically that 16 to 25 year age range when they first start bumping up into adult law enforcement. 
um, man, just almost all of them, some kind of a bad home environment type situation, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a, a majority of street gang members come from single parent homes um, and even the sort of uh, worst of the worst type offenses. When you think about like mass public shootings, uh, 75% of the, the 25 most recent high profile mass public shootings came from, from either father absent or abusive homes. Um, that's not to say that if you don't have a dad in the home, uh, sort of throw in the towel, everything is, is going to be bad. Um, it's just much more likely that things are going to be difficult and that you're going to find yourself uh, in a situation where in searching for that kind of familial situation, you find yourself either involved with a street gang or involved with a group of kids that you shouldn't be involved with. And so we can sort of cut the head off the snake with some of this stuff if we, uh, we address it this way. You also wrote, though, that the good news to that is for as bad as it is for the kids that don't have, you know, good home situations, the data also says the reverse is true. And we also know now, you know, let's, you know, we just live in a society where the home structure is not as traditional as it used to be. It doesn't have to be that biological dad, you know, nuclear family thing. If you have strong parents in the home, the data is overwhelming, whatever form that takes, and it may take a non-traditional form that sets a lot of these kids up on a path to success and the statistics bear that out, don't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, there's the ideal here, right? And the ideal is two parents in the home, both involved in raising the kids, uh, so on and so forth, but there are then sort of shades of gray from there. And so if there's something about uh, a particular relationship that didn't allow for that relationship to flourish between a mom and a dad or, or parents otherwise, but the parent who's not in the home is meaningfully involved in that child's life in some way. If there are, you know, uncles or family friends or coaches or things like that who are involved in a kid's life in a meaningful way, all of that can can help offset some of that. Yeah. And let's talk about that for just a second, because, you know, again, you come from that background of criminal justice and you study that policy wise. There's a societal element to this because we say, well, there's not a father in the home. But I, I, I think back to my own childhood, like we had really strong elderly people around us all the time. Like, I mean, just really strong character, older folk. You can have family, community, um, civic organizations, churches, sports teams can do this. Uh, music teams can do this. I got a kid in band. It's like this, the band, you know, the band becomes their family. There can be, it's not an ideal situation, but society and community and family, they really can't stop gag some of this. If there's those strong, adult presences around these kids, isn't there? That's that's absolutely true. And one of the unfortunate things is that at the same time, this trend in fatherhood has persisted and we've seen more and more kids growing up in, in a house without a dad. You're seeing sort of these breakdown of some of these civic institutions. You're seeing church attendance uh, shrink. You're seeing uh, civic association uh, participation shrink, uh, things like Kiwanis clubs and, and stuff like that. Uh, you're seeing rotary clubs, you're seeing less and less attendance with, um, and you're seeing the sort of general breakdown of, of community to a certain extent. And so uh, one can certainly step in and, and help offset the other, but unfortunately, a lot of the trends in both of those things uh, are headed in the wrong direction. Yeah, Josh Crawford joining us. All right, here's the hard question, though. What do we do about it? We already touched on it a little bit. Is this a policy thing? Is this a societal thing? Is it a cultural thing? Uh, you know, parenting from, from the way I understand it, the best on a lot of levels is, you know, fatherhood's a mentorship type thing. I don't know that you can really legislate that. I know we can do things to kind of put an environment around it. Is it 
all of the above? Is it none of the above? Is there shades in that? What do you think the actual solution on trying to improve this is other than just person to person trying to make this as best we can? Yeah, it's, it's all of the above. The, the first thing is to make sure that as a matter of public policy, we don't disincentivize fatherhood and marriage, right? There's some things that we do via welfare programs that, that encourage uh, single parenthood. Um, and <clears throat> what are the things that we, as a matter of public policy, can do proactively? Uh, one of the things that have been evaluated in sort of a comprehensive way are these sort of fatherhood programs for people who find themselves uh, in the criminal justice system as defendants. And uh, what the reviews have found is that when, when properly implemented, those programs can, can meaningfully uh, improve uh, participation in a kid's life, as well as things like welfare payments and stuff like that. So on the public policy side, there's all of that. But but the big thing here is that, that dads need to step up. It is a, a cultural and a social and a societal question. And part of that is if you've got a friend who's a dad who's not involved in that kid's life at all, and, and you read this piece, then it behooves you to say like, hey, man, like, let's go see your kid or, you know, like, let's go to their baseball game or whatever. And part of it is just that sort of social pressure from friends that the expectation, the expectation on moms uh, has always been like, you have to raise your kids, right? There seems to be this shift as it relates to dads of like, yeah, you got to provide some financial support, but there's no expectation that you're meaningfully involved. That has to change. How much is this is a generational shift right now? Because we, I'm a little bit generation gap because my, my mom was the youngest of nine kids and my parents didn't have me till their mid thirties. They're in their late mid seventies. Uh, my dad's 76 now. So I'm a little bit gender gapped for my age cohort on paper. But, you know, we talk about the boomers all the time, but that's a huge cohort that is starting to pass off the scene now. They're getting older. Generationally changed now. This new generation coming up, because I see it with my old kids, they're more online. They have wider friend networks due to technology. I think there's going to be a big generational change in how we look at parenting going forward. Do you see that, too, when you sit down and look at this like, hey, you know, the Andy Griffith opening where you're walking down the fishing pole that's probably an iPad kind of situation. Now, is there a generational thing going on here too, where some of us are all just going to have to adapt a little bit? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Whenever my wife got pregnant, um, I bought a tremendous number of books <laughs> on parenting. And, you know, there's a, a number of uh, the sort of like standard, you know, do's and don'ts and milestones and all that kind of stuff. But I was I was sort of blown away by the number of books that deal specifically with this question of like kids and technology. Because so I'm I'm 32. I largely grew up in an era of cell phones and the internet and stuff like that. But it wasn't really until high school that that was pervasive for me. Well, when my daughter is I mean daughter now, I mean if 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 she wants to access the internet and things like that via cell phone, I mean she's she's 14 months. She can't do it competently, but uh, that technology is all around her. And so there's a, a wide array of books uh, and sort of prognostications on how you interact with your kids with those things and the, the sort of double-edged sword of those things, right? They can be a, a way to let that iPad parent for you, which is a, a huge mistake, or it could be the kind of thing that we do. My parents live in Massachusetts. And so we can uh, FaceTime on the iPad with my daughter and my parents, and they can see each other in a way that they normally wouldn't. And so that is definitely changing the game. 
Yeah. The one that will get a lot of parents and they got me is when your teenagers start Google fact checking, whatever you say right on the spot, that's a fun time to get to, but just the world we live in now, they can look it up immediately. Uh, Joshua Crawford joining us. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to put his lawyer hat back on uh, criminal justice reform. A lot of stuff going on. We're going to update since the last time he's been here. There's been a lot of stuff going on in his hometown, Louisville, Kentucky. We're going to get an update on that. Some of the things he's been talking about, some of the things they're working on at the Pegasus Institute. Joshua Crawford joining us again right after the break on her. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Hurt Tell. Really sharp guy. We always enjoy having him on the program, Joshua Crawford. Okay, last time we talked to you, you were dealing with a lot of stuff going on in Louisville. Uh, just update us real quick because people know some of the headline splashy stuff. You live there, so when the national news comes and they leave after a week or so, you're still in that community. What's going on in Louisville since all that splashy stuff over the last two years? Just kind of update us a little bit on what your city's doing and how y'all doing. And it, did we get anything from all the noise or is it still the same old problems? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Louisville since 2015 has seen uh, pretty substantial increases in its homicides um, and non-fatal shootings. A lot of that is, is gang and street group related. That was sort of put on steroids uh, over the last two years. Uh, but the particularly concerning thing is that Louisville, like a number of other large cities across the country, has experienced a giant surge in carjackings in the last two years. Uh, our carjackings have gone up uh, 206% uh, 2018 to 2020. Again, a lot of that is is uh, gang and street group related. But what is particularly difficult uh, from a public policy standpoint and from a societal standpoint is 51% of the arrestees for carjacking in Louisville are juveniles. They're kids under 18. Uh, and of that percentage of juveniles, uh, nearly a quarter of them are 14 and younger. So you've got kids that can't even legally drive, can't get a driver's license if they wanted to, putting a gun in somebody's chest and stealing their car. And so that's a big part of, of what we're dealing with right now. I am a, a part of the, the governance committee for the group violence intervention project that is going on here. Uh, I think that that has been a positive development for the city and has frankly kept things from being worse than they were. Uh, it sort of moves law enforcement resources to the worst of the worst, to, to the people that you want those things focused on. Um, and I'm hopeful that as we continue that effort, we'll, uh, we'll see some improvement. You've been doing a lot of media about this, uh, Joshua Crawford joining us. So let's just cut down through it because here, here's the problem. We have the social media and news media talking head side of uh, politics and criminal justice where it's always scream about crime because that gets votes and that gets money and you send money to. We understand that there's that side of all this. But you've been talking about in a lot of media interviews lately 
about what's really causing violent crime. It, you're never going to get separated because of human nature, because we just know violent crime is always going to have a spotlight on it. It's like you point at that and then, oh, that's what's wrong. Where's this actually coming from? Because, you know, we have economic unconcerns. We have all other things going on. There doesn't seem to be one real cause here. So where's this current wave of violent crime coming from? And how much of it is kind of social media, news media, just being able to hone in on this every time it happens now? Yeah, so um, the American people generally will answer the question, is crime increasing in the affirmative, whether crime is increasing or decreasing? Uh, unfortunately, though, over the last several years, when they answer that in the affirmative, they have been correct because uh, crime, especially violent crime, especially the most serious violent crimes, uh, again, murders, shootings, carjackings, things like that, have been increasing uh, uh, quite considerably. And so uh, there's a, a truism there, but, but crime concentrates among a remarkably small percentage of your population. Typically, it's about a half a percent of a city's population that's responsible for about 50% of its violence. Uh, typically, it's about 5% of offenders that are responsible for 50% of your violence. And so it concentrates among a very small group. It tends to be those, those individuals uh, committing crimes against each other within the subcontext of criminal street gangs. What makes the serious violence so tragic is far too often it spills out uh, uh, against innocent bystanders. I mean, here in the city of Louisville, we've had a three-year-old girl executed in broad daylight. We've had a seven-year-old boy shot and killed while sitting at his kitchen table. Uh, we routinely have, have children who end up caught in the crossfire of this. And so there, there is the sort of proverbial, if it bleeds, it leads truism of the news media. Uh, but unfortunately, we're living through a time period where that is is oftentimes reflecting a reality. And since you just mentioned it, let's talk about that for a second, because like you said, crime is actually a very small criminal, I should say. That's a very small percentage of the population. But how we deal with that small part of the population has a tremendous ripple effect on the rest of society. I know we talk about that in the context of criminal justice or criminal law reform, but just kind of break that down for folks a little bit. It's like, because we just see the headlines and then everybody just wants to sledgehammer the bad guy. And we all get that because there's some truly mm -hmm. horrible people out there. But we also got all the data in the world of just pouring money and punishing everybody. That's not enough, is it? And then when we have waves like this, how do we talk about this in a productive way where we keep our own humanity? We understand that even though we're dealing with bad people, we're still dealing with people. And we actually get some traction instead of just repeating the same cycle over and over again. I know that's a way too big of a question for one answer, but just kind of give us kind of a building block there, because that's really gets to the heart of some of the stuff you guys work on, isn't it? Yeah, the, the answer there is to concentrate resources among your problem populations, right? That's true of law enforcement resources. It's true of social service resources. It's true in, in questions of criminal sentencing, right? Like um, we generally know. Uh, the categories of people that commit these serious offenses in large numbers. They tend to be habitual repeat offenders. Um, they tend to, to escalate their behavior. And again, a lot of it happens within the subcontext of, of criminal street gangs. And so adopting policing practices that reflect that, adopting sentencing practices that reflect that, because you know, you can have a guy walk into a courtroom who deserves to spend the rest of his life in prison. And the very next person who is charged with uh, a different but likewise serious offense who that's not the best disposition for that person. The system has to be nimble enough to address those things. And so if you have sort of broad sweeping mandatory minimums for things, you're going to have some problems with that. But at the same time, making sure that, that law enforcement and prosecutors have the tools needed to, 
to say that is a person who's wreaking havoc in a community. And that's the kind of person that we build prisons for and making sure that that person spends uh, the time that they need there. And the other edge of that two-edged sword, though, is the prosecutors and the law enforcement. Uh, they need to be held accountable and be the best they can be. We've seen the example, of course, in Uvalde lately. We just saw mm -hmm. uh, up in Flint, Michigan, where the prosecution of the uh, Flint water crisis got uh, thrown out for an overexertion of authority. Those two things have to go together because every case we see, if you don't have police and the prosecutors at their very best, you're not going to be able to do anything about the very worst of society at the same time because it's, it's, it just makes the mess worse. How do we talk about that in a context of, of course, we want to support good police because good police wants to get rid of bad police, every single one of them without exception. Mm -hmm. How do we hold accountable and get the best out of our public servant side of that instead of just always screaming and pointing at the bad people? Because you got to have both, don't you? Yeah, the, the question is a little bit easier for law enforcement than it is for prosecutors, but I'll address both. Um, interestingly, much like crime in the general population concentrates among a small number of individuals, police misconduct tends to concentrate very highly among a small number of individuals. And so making sure that those individuals are both uh, appropriately reprimanded and then that, that they can't just simply leave a department or be fired from a department and go to another department. That's one of the things that has happened here in Kentucky. If you are uh, essentially fired for misconduct, you now lose your POP certification. And so you can't go be a law enforcement officer anywhere else in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Uh, so that's a positive step forward to hold accountable those individuals who are uh, engaging in, in misconduct. Um, for prosecutors, it's a little bit tougher because uh, the United States Supreme Court gives prosecutors very wide discretion in how they charge, what they charge, what they don't charge. Um, and so what really has to happen in order to hold a prosecutor accountable is for there to be some sort of gross misconduct. Uh, the, the best example of this, which is no longer really a contemporary example, was the, the Duke lacrosse prosecution. Uh, the, that prosecutor was, was held accountable for what was the, just sort of a blatant disregard for evidence of, of being disregard for the truth a crusade against some some factually innocent individuals. And so there are ways to hold prosecutors accountable in those circumstances. But generally speaking, prosecutors are given pretty wide discretion on, on how they charge uh, and if they choose to charge versus not. Yeah. And if you've never seen the ESPN 30 for 30 on, on Will Fork and the Duke lacrosse case, I know it's a sports related show. You know, the, the lawyers always joked like, well, it's never like the movies. You never have the cross-examination that blows up the case. That one, they really had it. And it was actually a young, untrained lawyer that just unraveled him on the scan. It's an amazing thing. Please go watch it because uh, you will learn very quickly about that case. And there's a lot of implications there. Joshua Crawford joining us real quick. A few minutes we got left. Let folks know what the Pegasus Institute is doing. Uh, we've had you on before. You guys do such good work. Uh, let them know, just kind of dovetail, what you're doing with the Pegasus Institute. You're getting a lot of national attention. I know you just talked to Representative Crenshaw here recently. Uh, just update folks on that so they know what it is you're spending a lot of your time on because you're doing some really, really good work, sir. Yes. Oh, I appreciate that. So we're headquartered in Louisville, and for much of our history, we have been primarily focused on state of Kentucky issues, some federal issues and city of Louisville issues, but we've always sort of had that like urban focus, that urban bend to what we do. But because we're located in Kentucky and because uh, the counties in Appalachian, Kentucky are, are sort of so economically depressed and so underserved and in many ways, we have, I wouldn't say shifted our focus, but we are giving that a lot more attention here right now. And so we have a, 
paper that is going to be released in the near term on uh, economic development in Appalachia and, and frankly, the lack of economic development in Appalachia since President Johnson's war on poverty. Uh, a lot of the things that haven't worked there. So that's something for folks to look out for. And in that same vein, uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, a number of weeks ago now uh, printed a piece on uh, something that has really gone sort of unnoticed in the last couple of years, and that has been the increase in violence in rural communities. Uh, a lot of the attention is focused on our urban centers, 30% increase in homicides in American cities, uh, 2019 to 2020. But what the Wall Street Journal analysis found was that there was a 25% increase in homicides in rural communities over that time period. And so we're taking a look at rural communities in Kentucky to see if that trend holds true here uh, and look at some of the reasons that that may be the case. Hey, I'm a West Virginia kid. You don't have to convince me about it. Uh, we have an absolute epidemic with opioids and violence going on right now. And we, we just talked about it with the, uh, the CPS system in West Virginia is so broken right now. They can't even take kids. They had a scandal where they were shipping them off to Pennsylvania, lost track of a guy I grew up with, um, played pickup basketball with Winston church with, he's a sitting circuit judge now. And I was eating with him and he just kind of shook his head. He, he'd just been on the job like three months. He just shook his head. He's like, I have one case that's mom and the next case is a dad and I got to send them both away. Now what do I do? And I know mm -hmm. CPS is shot, you know, this stuff, when you do that, let me know. We will put you on. We will talk about that because that's that's something that's near and dear to me. So I appreciate y'all looking at that um, wide ranging problem. That's not gonna, there you go again. That's I fear that's going to be one of them generational type problems, my friend. It's it, This is mm -hmm. not going to be a policy fix. This is going to take an all of the above and it's going to take decades, probably, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way that some of these communities have been ravaged by drugs and especially in the era of fentanyl with overdose deaths now um, and <clears throat> new meth, which is old meth, which is sort of a, a lengthy conversation. But the, the methamphetamine that people are using today is, is not the methamphetamine of the 1990s. Uh, it's a it's a chemically different substance. It's a more addictive substance. And it's a substance that can do, in some cases, irreparable damage to your brain. And so it's the the environment is is very difficult to to fix some of this stuff. And we'll, somewhere in there, we'll have you on and we'll talk something light too, I promise. But uh, Joshua Crawford, always enjoy the conversation, my friend. Uh, we will definitely be having you back uh, until we get you back on the show. Though, let folks know about your social media and what you're doing so they can follow you between now and then. Yeah, so uh, the website is PegasusKentucky.org, Kentucky spelled all the way out. Um, and then, you know, wherever you do your social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm not personally on Twitter, but the organization is. And so you can find all of our stuff there. Yep. And we got it right there on the lower third graphic. And we will link to all this in the show notes, his piece in National Review on Fatherhood. Please watch, read it. That's a good one to share off with folks, too. Joshua Crawford, sir, always a pleasure talking to you. Look forward to doing it again real, real soon, my friend. Thank you for having me. Thank you, sir.